Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick with Figured Out Baseball. We've got a really good Figured Out Baseball podcast today that uh, I'm pretty excited about. We've got someone who's got some video content on the website and someone I've got to know a little bit over the last couple years. We're being joined today by Jared Franklin. He's an assistant coach at Fordham University, a Division I school in the Bronx, New York, also part of the Atlantic 10 Conference. He's a guy that's been uh, all over the place. He's, he's coached a little bit of at every level, uh, at a lot of different locations, he's been all over the country, uh, all in fact, outside of the country as well. So it's a he's an interesting guy that I'm excited to talk to today. Uh, I'll give you a quick background on Coach Franklin before we do jump into questions with him so you get to know a little bit more about his journey, and maybe we'll hear more about this once we do get into the podcast. Going into the spring of 2021, this will be Coach Franklin's 20th season in coaching. He's originally from Antwerp, Ohio. He went to Columbus State uh, Junior College in Ohio and then graduated ultimately from Ohio Dominican in Columbus, Ohio. Um, He began his coaching career with eight years in the high school ranks before jumping into college. In the springs of 2009 and 10, he was an assistant coach at Ohio Wesleyan, a Division III school in Delaware, Ohio. 2011, he was an assistant coach at Texas A&M International, a Division II school in Laredo, Texas. He spent 2012 as a coach at IMG Academy, um, an academy for a great academy for high school athletes of any sport, really. But uh, he was the baseball coach there in Bradenton, Florida. In 2013, he was an assistant coach at Southeastern Illinois College, a junior college in Harrisburg, Illinois. In 2014, he was an assistant coach at Defiance, Ohio. A Divi- I'm sorry, at Defiance College, a Division three school in Defiance, Ohio. In 2015 and 16, he was the head coach, spent two years as the head coach at Webster County High School, a high school in Kentucky. Then 2017 and 18, back into the college ranks, he was a hitting coach at Lake Erie College, a Division II school in Painesville, Ohio. Then October 2018, he was hired as an assistant coach at Fordham University. In 2019, the spring of 2019, his first spring there, the team won the Atlantic 10 Championship. Only the second time in school history the team won the A-10s. It was their first NCAA tournament appearance that year since 1998. In 2019, Fordham led the nation Division, all of Division I schools in stolen bases with 178 steals. They also set the school record with 38 wins. Coach Franklin has coached uh, throughout the years, through, uh, through all of his college coaching. He spent a number of years in a number of different uh, summer collegiate leagues coaching. He's been an associate scout for the Texas Rangers. He has coached 31 players who have signed pro contracts, including three big leaguers. That's a heck of a resume and uh, just a lot of a lot of stops and a lot of really interesting things to talk about. Uh, Jared, I sincerely appreciate you being on the podcast with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I think that bio took up the entire time. <laughs> it's one of the longer bios, and but it's such a it's such an interesting one to me, especially. All the levels you've coached, you've gone back and forth from high school to college, uh, back to high school, back to college, and you and you finally have ascended to Division One, which for people on the outside, you know, might be sort of the ultimate goal. But you know, I, uh, for some coaches, it's not. Some coaches like the different levels. So I'm just that's one thing I'm interested for sure is to talk about the different levels that you've coached and kind of different things you've seen. Um, but one of the things I'd like to ask you about, just to begin with here, Coach Franklin, is just going back and forth between high school and college. You started out with eight years of coaching at the high school level and then got your first college coaching job in the spring of 2009. Um, I I think there's a lot of high school coaches out there who may have aspirations of doing that someday. And I just kind of wanted to ask you, number one, what kind of gave you the itch to get into college baseball? And then number two, how did you come about, how did you come across that opportunity 
uh, to really dig in there because I I know that you know my college coaching experience is kind of like guys that aren't coaching in college in at some level are looked at um, as sort of they're missing something from their resume. You know, a high school coach you just don't do the same things you do as a college coach. So for a lot of guys, that's probably a barrier that that they might not know how to get over. So just kind of curious there, what gave you the itch to get into college coaching, and how did you get your first opportunity at Ohio Wesleyan? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think when I got into coaching, it was it, it, I started as a, as a freshman head freshman coach, and it was just you know, let's see how far can I take this to be the best that I can be with these guys, and then what can I do to move up to the next level? And um, the, the Ohio Wesleyan came about because I was asked to be uh, an assistant for the Delaware Cows in the Great Lakes League summer league, college summer league, and they played at Ohio Wesleyan. So just through that connection, uh, playing at Ohio Wesleyan, I got to know Tyler Bach, still the head coach at, at Ohio Wesleyan. And he offered me an assistant position. That was just, I think that first year was just volunteer. In fact, I know it was just volunteer that first year. Um, working with the hitters and outfielders. And after that first year, he got me on part-time for the second year. So it just it was kind of the, you know, I, I was offered, I, I honestly I don't even know why I was offered the position with the Delaware Cows. I was a high school guy. These were all Division One college players coming for the summer. Uh, Dave Copeland's uh, legendary guy, coach in the state of Ohio, was the manager and asked me to come along and um, kind of went from there. Did you have an idea before you got that opportunity that you would like to end up in college, or was it just you know you were kind of going along, coaching high school, pretty happy with what you're doing, enjoying that experience, and then this just sort of popped up out of nowhere? Or was that something that you had sort of thought about, like, hey, someday I might like to do this? Well, I think it was always something I wanted to do. And at that time, I think I was maybe 27, 28 years old, and at that point thought, thought I was still going to be a manager in the Chicago Cubs one day. So uh, <laughs> it was like, yeah, I'm just going to keep going as far as I can. And so it was definitely something I wanted to do. Um, I didn't know if it was something I could do or it was even a possibility, but when the opportunity came, I certainly jumped at it. Then from there, obviously, you moved up uh – coached all over the place a lot of different places you coached you've coached in Ohio in Texas in Florida in Illinois uh, high school in Kentucky now you're in New York uh, has there been one particular stop that maybe was a was a really enjoyable place for you to live like kind of take the the college coaching experience out of it was there any particular place that you lived that you thought you've you've thought like since then if all things uh you know if 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 family wasn't an issue, if the job wasn't an issue, like this is a place I could, I'd really like to live. Just the town, the area was really cool for you to live. Yeah, right out in Florida, obviously. Going up in Ohio, uh, being in of Florida, and IMG, the IMG Academy is an amazing place. That that was really a cool place to be. Um, it's right on the Gulf, so you're, you know there's a beach right there. So if you take out this, the baseball side, being in Florida was was awesome. Uh, you know they've all had different experiences. Being in New York's awesome because it's the city. You know? I don't know that you want to be in the city your whole life, uh, coming from a small town in Ohio, but it's a cool experience for sure. I'm interested to talk about just all the different responsibilities that you've had through the years as well. You know, a lot of guys that bounce around um, and go to a lot of different places, you're just, you might be asked to do different things, the different places that you go. Did you have any particular stops, Jared, where you, where that, where the coach wanted you to coach, uh, a position that you weren't necessarily familiar with, 
Uh, just I'm kind of curious about that. Is if somebody ever said like, "Hey, would you? Hey, you're going to coach the catchers, and you never had done something like that before. Did you ever have that experience where a coach asked you to do something? It was just sort of um, something you had never done before. You kind of had to really cram pretty quickly to to try to figure that out. Yeah, well, when I, when my first job at Ohio Wesleyan, I was an infielder, um, and it was working with outfielders. So that was doing as much research as I can quickly to to figure out what to do with outfielders and, and how to do it. In, in Ohio, we spent a lot of time indoors in the field house, so you had to come up with indoor drills um, for the outfielders in the wintertime. That was, that was, uh, that was fun. Uh, it was certainly unique, and, and looking back now, geez, what's that been? 11 years ago, I could have certainly done things better. Now, <laughs> the more knowledge I have now, and differently, but uh, yeah, I think early on, working with infielders or outfielders was, was a bit of a challenge. Can you if you could possibly make this checklist, what positions have you coached at this point? Like, or I shouldn't even say positions. Just what have your responsibilities been on the field? Coaching positions, coaching bases, coaching hitters, yeah. pitchers. Uh, I'm kind of curious as to now what you can sort of check off on your resume. Well, it's, well uh, that's an easy one to answer. It's everything but catchers. I've, I've literally coached every position but catchers. I've coached the first base a lot. I've coached third base a lot. Um, in my first year at Fordham, I was essentially the bullpen coach um, slash pitching coach. The head coach, Kevin Lang, and I worked together on that. He called pitches, and I'd be in the bullpen and getting the guys hot and ready and, and telling them what's going to happen. So um, I've literally I've been the head coach at 10 years, I think, in the summer leagues doing as a head coach. So I've done literally everything except catchers. My second coaching job, I was asked to coach the bullpen um, because on the offensive side, you know, when, when I was I was basically the guy that when we were in the dugout, I didn't necessarily have a responsibility when we were hitting. I was the first base coach, but when we were in the dugout, I um, our our head coach positioned the defense. Our other guy was a pitching coach, and and I was. This is just how we set up. We had three guys on the staff, and the head coach immediately was you know when I first got there, it's like you're going to coach in in the bullpen, and I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I. I was an emergency catcher in college. I, I caught, you know, in high school I caught and I pitched, but I didn't know the first thing about coaching any a pitcher. So I sort of got a crash course and is what to do out there and, and what not to do and more or less like keep your mouth shut and don't screw anybody up and just sort of talk about, you know, getting them loose and getting their um, kind of establishing at least one pitch before they go into the game. That was sort of what I remember and what I've what I've done. So what about now at, um, at Fordham? What are your responsibilities? I just kind of want to talk about the coaching side of things a little bit, just give people some insight into what being a college coach is about, is like, is and, and the responsibilities. What are your responsibilities, um, maybe even in the office, but particularly on the field, you know, during practice, on a game day? What what kind of things are you responsible for on those days? Well, right now I coach first base and work with the hitters, but you know the hitting side of it's really it's myself. Uh, Pat Porter is kind of taking the lead on that, and then, then Coach Layton was a big time hitter in college too. So the three of us kind of it's kind of a three headed monster there that works out pretty well because we do a very good job of communicating uh, amongst each other with what we want to do. Um, so the infielders first base, and then work with the hitters. From you know game day, it's you know, because we're, we we let this country sold bases two years row, eighteen and nineteen a year before I got there my first year there. And from the first base side I, I have I control about ninety five percent of that um, at first base. 
uh, because all of our guys have a great body. Coach Layton will put a lot of steel occasionally from the dugout, but most of the time it's it's based on what I'm seeing and, and leading and communicating with the runners at first base. And a lot of that comes from office work with a um, um, program called Synergy. I don't know, are you familiar with Synergy? Just from hearing, just from talking with guys like yourself and, and hearing it, it wasn't something yeah. that was around when I coached. But you might, I mean, you might tell yeah. other people what it is. Well, yeah, it's basically, uh, I think every D1 has it now. And it's video of everyone's games. So all of our games are videoed either, you know, through an ESPN Plus feed or just from a center field camera. It's sent to Synergy. They, they chop it up basically and you can search it from whatever you want to find, you can find. So when we know weekend starters, we can go on Synergy and we can watch watch them the, all the previous games that are on there. So, uh, as the first base coach, I like to look at pickoffs and tendencies and what they're doing from that side of it so I can have an idea going into the game what we may see out of that pitcher from a pickoff attempt um, point of view. Along with the stolen base, let's talk about that for a little bit. Leading the entire country in stolen bases is is a pretty hefty feat. There's a lot of Division One schools out there, uh, and that's not something that you see a lot today in Major League Baseball. But it is still something that's alive in college baseball. And it's one of the things I like about college baseball is that it's still baseball. You still have to make runs happen as opposed to waiting for the three run homer. In college ball, you still have uh, some teams more than others, but you still have some bunting in college. You still have stolen bases. You have a lot, probably more, uh, you know, dirt balls and things like that in college than you do in pro ball. What all goes into being an elite team as far as stolen bases go? So all of your guys have the green light. What goes into that ahead of time? Like in, in practices, um, looking at scouting reports, you touched on that a little bit, but what goes into being a really elite team as far as stolen bases go in the, in the college game today? Well, I, you know, we practice it a lot. Uh, I don't want to say daily, but pretty close to every day. We're, we're, we're working on it in some capacity. Um, I, you know, I think the, the, the very first thing we do, and any coach can do this, it doesn't matter what level you're at, is we put our guys on day one in the fall at a 12-foot lead. We measure out 12 feet, we put a cone, and we just time them from on their first move to the time they slide in the second. So we have a time on them. They know their time. So it's a 3-5. Okay, you're three and a half seconds. So if we know that if the pitcher's a one five and the catcher's a two one, you're going to be safe most of the time with a decent jump. So our guys kind of it's kind of built in confidence of based on your on your time and the pitcher and catcher's time, you've got a pretty good chance to steal the bag here. So I, I think that's a significant thing for us that we've got their time ahead of time of what they do. But then we practice it, and we've got two different groups. Um, we call them group A and group B and group A so if you ask guys they can pretty much just run whatever they want and these are the guys that we've got to practice the jump lead the ball um, and the timing is a little bit more can you? This might be something you have to show, so we might not be able to do it now. How much can you talk about the vault lead and give people an idea what that is, how you incorporate that, uh, and just how that can be a weapon in stolen bases? Is that is that something you can do just with the recorded phone call here, or is that something, Jared? Do you think we need to get a video on sometime? Well, I can I can try. I could also do a video sometime. It's basically we have our guys that we need them to get to twelve feet before they take off. So if it's a standard, if you're just a straight steel guy, you know, a guy, you can just get to 12 feet and go. So our slower guys, we have them go from 8 or 10 feet, and it's basically just a hop. Um, you know, 
think a lot of schools are kind of doing it now, like a hop to get to 12 to get some momentum going as the pitcher's going. So you've got to time it up. And, you know, I know UCLA is a big one that, that they talk, you know, you're, you're in your head, you're saying UCLA, whatever he pitches on. So he's like, hey, he pitches on L, he pitches on C, and you can kind of time your hop into that. Uh, that definitely takes some practice and, some, and, and uh, just some time to work on that. But guys can get pretty good at it. And then, um, trying to get into, if you're running in break, all speed counts, it certainly helps a lot with that too, but um, yeah, the world is just, you know, they're starting a little shorter, they're hopping to 12 on their, on their lead and trying to time up the pitcher pitch the plate. What, can you talk about just what a good time is for a base stealer? And, and maybe maybe give like your levels between this and this is a time is is a really elite running time, you know this time to this time is pretty average. This time to this time is below. Just uh, again to kind of give yeah. people an idea of what goes on at the Division One level and just how, um, you know what's a good time, what's not. Well, we've just because we just broken into two groups, so we've gone three five and under. So our fast guys three and, and above three five, you're going to have to be a jump lead guy uh, in order to steal a bag. So. Um, we just brought in the, you know, just below three five. So if you can get um, from twelve feet to second base in three and a half seconds or less, you would consider you to be fast enough to straight steal. And there's gonna, I mean, there's gonna be pitchers and catchers that you just can't run on. If a guy, the guy's a one two to the plate and the catcher's throwing a one nine, then we, we don't run. We do basically have no shot at that point. But we don't have anybody fast enough to do that. Um, but that's yeah, three and a half seconds for our level is kind of where we're at. And that's just assuming a one five. So legitimately, even for teams that are really elite base stealers, if the if the pitcher is fast enough to the plate, that can basically shut the run game down for you. Regardless, I mean, a team comes in to to playing Fordham in a series, and you know, okay, these guys they they run like crazy, they run every opportunity they get. But if you've got a pitcher on, if you just say you have a starter and the two relievers that pitch that day, and everybody is like a one-two to the plate, you guys probably aren't going to be able to run much that day. Just mathematically, it's just not going to happen. Right. We're not stealing second that day. We might steal, steal third, depending on what they do there. But I think our thought process, too, is if you're not normally a one-two and you're forcing yourself to do that, we've kind of won already because we've taken the pitcher out of his, his original or initial natural uh, mechanics and thought process. So, yeah, if you can throw three guys out there against us that are naturally a one-two, we're probably not going to lose. But because we're not running just to leave the country in small bases, we're running to score runs. Um, so, and we, we run into that. George Mason had a catcher two years ago that was a stud, and I think was the first pick in the second round. Uh, and he threw out our fastest guy in the first inning and said, don't do that. And we said, okay, <laughs> we will. <laughs> we will. And we didn't steal another base that game. Um, and then that's just the day where we've got to find other ways to score. So, um, yeah, but if, if, if your pitcher's naturally a 1-5 or 1-6 or and he's a 1-2 because of us, then we probably won. Now, the stolen bases really aren't a, much of a part of Major League Baseball anymore, and I know if that for most people out there, like that's just the easiest level to watch. Uh, you know, college baseball, thank goodness, is getting to be. Uh, it's it, you see more and more games on TV, especially if you have ES, if you have access to ESPN three, ESPN plus, you see more games than than you really ever have in the past couple years, which is awesome. Um, but for people that just 
you know, someone coaching high school, someone coaching college, or that wants to coach college that watches a lot of Major League Baseball and the stolen bases uh, is really going by the wayside there. Why is it still a part of college baseball? Like, why does Fordham look at the stolen base as a weapon to the point where you use enough to to lead the nation in stolen bases? Like, why why is that a big part of your offense at this point? Well, it actually was because we didn't have much offense. Uh, you know, in fact, the year we won the A-10, uh, we got our batting average up to 250. We were at 235 most of the year. Uh, so in order for us to manufacture runs, we had to steal. Uh, and we didn't have much power. I, I think part of the reason we, it's gone away in Major League Baseball is because there's so much power. One through nine in a lineup that hit 30 home runs. And if you equate that to us in a 56-game season, it's about a third of the season of the Major League Baseball play. So our guys would have to hit 10 home runs piece in order to say justify not stealing in my mind and we don't have any but I don't think we've had anybody hit 10 home runs in 20 years so uh, playing in the northeast you know I said this too it's baseball isn't a spring sport it's a winter sport in a normal year we open up in February again we're playing February March April uh, and the temperature is 40 degrees and the wind's blowing in there's nobody sitting home runs at our ballpark in the spring especially early on so for us, it was a way to manufacture runs. We've got to run because we're not going to hit the power. We're actually not hitting for average. What can we do to produce some runs? And then naturally, the stolen base comes into play. Now, do you think... And we've bought a lot also. I mean, we're, we're, we steal and bunt. We play small ball. It's kind of a West Coast style of let's play small ball and steal base. Now, do you, do you think that the team would still run a lot if... You know, because you guys have had some success, if you're able to, if you've got some pretty big time recruits in there, some guys that were going to hit between 10 and 15 homers, guys in the middle of the lineup, do you think you would still run as much, or or do you think that it's just a, it's a it's a pure necessity thing? Like if you don't have to steal, we're not going to steal as much. But on a year when we don't have a lot of extra base hit power, we're going to run more. Is it just kind of curious again how uh, just how Fordham views it in general? Do you think it would change at all if you had some really elite sluggers in the middle of the lineup? That's a good point. Um, okay, on-field responsibilities. So you do you coach first base at Fordham? That's correct. So I, I know that uh, from my brief stop as a high school coach, uh, it, it, it was kind of shocking to me how most – and I would assume this is, mo- this is the same mostly across the board. You've been at the high school level, too, so you'll probably know this as well. But uh, uh, the guy that I – well, my assistant coaches, it was kind of like whoever I put at first base, it, it almost didn't dawn on them that there were responsibilities there. Um, and that was kind of shocking to me. And even after, I kind of said, well, this is what you're supposed to be doing at first base. Like, you're, 
you're not just there to collect elbow guards and shin guards and and you know give somebody a fist pound when they come down there. Like you've got to do some coaching. And even after that, I had I just had a hard time getting uh, my first base coach to kind of buy into that. Um, at the college level, what are responsibilities of a first base coach? What are you doing down there? What kind of data are you trying to collect? How much are you using your eyes? Are you stealing signs? Are you you know just what what goes on as a as a college first base coach? What are you doing down there? Uh, you know, I heard this when I first started coaching, I had a guy tell me that you want to be master of the obvious at first base. How many outs there are, what to do uh, in those situations. So the very first thing I do is tell how many outs there are. So that would be, uh, you know, nobody out, uh, break it up on the ground ball, back on line drives as much as you can on a fly ball. And it's one out or two outs moving on contact. That's the very first thing when they get down there is how many outs are. Because the one time you don't tell them how many outs there are, they run on the fly ball to left and there was one out. Um, and it's like that ah, didn't come that time so that's the very first thing I always do and then it comes from there it becomes for us the way it kind of works is, is Coach Wayne's in the dugout giving signs Coach Porter's in third base so all signs come from the dugout so once I tell them how many I thought they're immediately looking at the dugout for signs uh, and then it becomes if I've already if I've already had a guy there I'm telling him when he typically pitches so um, you know if you were to go back to the first or my second uh my second college coaching job was the first time I coached first base and um you know I thought I knew what I was doing over there I, I studied the game a lot you know asked questions in my first college coaching job uh, I, I didn't have a ton of responsibility and I go to the second one and, I, and I'm, I'm coaching first and I'm also the hitting coach and I I can remember just uh I got there in the spring I took the job in November late November I, I got hired and I got there in January and um <laughs> I got chewed out pretty good one of our first series because I did not communicate with the runner on first base when the first baseman was playing behind. Um, yeah. They backpicked, and I was not in the right position to be able to see that. Yeah. And I was like, I, I just never – I didn't really think about it. Like, I was paying attention, but but I didn't have the right angle to see him creeping in, and I was a little bit late to say something. And uh, So I, I, got a good, I got a good lesson that first job, and I took it very seriously. I coached first base at every stop. Uh, just kind of coincidentally, all five, well, 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 starting with my second job, I guess, but four jobs in a row, my last four jobs in college, I coached first base at all of them, and you know, it took a lot of pride in, in what it was about, but there was more to it, there was more to it than I thought, there really was. Uh, I think there's a bit of an art to it, and like, I've talked about this, one of the things that I do at first base is I stand at the edge of the outfield grass, when there's nobody on first base. So I stand at the 
I'm not sure that there was ever a time when I coached that I was actually in the coach's box at first base. Oh, I Very rarely. And those guys that, that creep up the line, like you're talking about those guys that are 60, 70 feet away from the hitter? Yeah. Nuts to me. Absolutely nuts. Yeah. I, yeah, I, do. I am not comfortable at all with that. And I feel like I have tried it, but now I'm looking at, now my focus is on the hitter instead because I'm afraid of a line drive and not the runner at first base. So I just always stay deep, as deep as I can and all that. And I like what you said about just being master of the obvious and constantly repeating things. And and it got to a point for me, like coaching first base for so many years, that almost on every pitch I was reminding guys how many outs there are and whatever other game situation they needed, or if there was a defender that was moving around, I was you know kind of just point that out, like hey, check out where so and so is and wherever it was. Um, but like constantly doing that and constantly reminding guys. Well, typically, if somebody is, if the first baseman's holding you, you're going back on a line as opposed to freezing on a line. So just, you know, hollering out stuff right. like that. And it was, it, like you said, it was almost inevitable that if I didn't say it on a particular pitch, something was going to happen. It's like the guy's going to forget what situation it is. You know? That's true. The guy I didn't tell him, I forgot that one time, and that's when they got you. Yeah, for sure. So going back to stolen bases, just to talk about that a little bit more. Do you also believe at Fordham offensively that that the threat of the steal, even the threat of it, opens up other things for you guys on offense? And if so, what else do you think that opens up or, or um, maybe other ways that it helps you? I mean, you've said a couple times now that if a pitcher is normally a 1.5, and, and we're talking there, a pitcher's time from when he first lifts his leg till when the ball hits the catcher's glove, like that's the guy's time to home. If a pitcher's time to home is 1.5 seconds normally, but when he pitches against you guys, it's 1.1, 1.2, you feel like you've already won. Can you just kind of talk about the impact that stolen bases have in other parts of the game that you've noticed in your couple years there at Fordham especially? Yeah, you know, the problem with it is it's not, you can't really measure that. You know, so it's just a feeling of, like, you know, we think that we're probably getting more fastballs offensively with the better of the steal because they're going to try and throw us out. They're more, like, uh, more likely more pitch outs because they're going to try and throw us out, so now it is an the count. Um, I, I think the biggest thing from the, from the hitting side of it is that we're probably getting more fastballs uh, with a guy on first that's a big threat, which obviously is good for our hitters. So, um, but I, I think it affects too with, with um, pickoffs. I mean, we've we've 
legs develop faster than arms at the high school level, and, and you can outrun a lot of catchers' arms uh, at the high school level too. But yeah, I, I really I think if, if a pitcher or, or a team has even prepped that week to shut us down running, we probably won because they've done they, they're taking their focus away from something they do well and putting on something they don't do so well potentially, and that's that's a win for us. Do you feel like it affects the pitchers? Uh, that you're you're pitching against, like does being quicker to the plate, does it make them elevate the ball more than they'd like to? Does it? Um, do you think it takes some focus away from them executing their pitches because they're 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 concerned about the runners on first and second base, um, or do you think that at the college level that's not that's not um, maybe not true so much as it might be at a lower level? Well, I think. I think you're right with some teams that it takes focus off of them, and some teams, honestly, some teams just don't care and, and let us run, which is a win for us too. I mean, we have faced teams who have said we knew we couldn't throw it out, so we didn't even we didn't even bother with it. Um, so they kept their pitcher doing his normal thing, uh, and we ran wild. Or he has to make an adjustment and, and either loses some velo, loses some command, loses some movement by shortening his stride or whatever because he's doing differently. Uh, clipping his stride in order to stop us. So, I, I mean, I, I would say in the last two years of Fordham, us stealing bases has not been a hindrance or hurt us in any way, shape, or form. Do you guys ever talk about as a staff at what, is there a percentage that you feel like you need to be safe in order to make it beneficial for your offense? Like if you have a base, even maybe one individual base runner who's, you know, stealing at a 50% clip, do you take the green light off for that guy? Like, is there a specific number you feel like as a team or as individuals guys need to hit or else it doesn't make sense we're going to shut it down? Uh, we haven't specifically talked about that, but I can tell you we stole second and third in 19 and last year at a little over 80% clip uh, as a team. So I think the numbers that I've heard when people are doing like 75%, you've got to be better at 75%. And honestly, uh, my 20 years, I think all of our teams have been about 80% in success rate with field. And, you know, the stolen base doesn't, all these numbers are assuming it's a perfect pitch and a perfect throw also. But, you know, a curve on the dirt, a change up in the dirt, you're stolen the base, or an errant throw, you're stolen the base and maybe got third also on it. So, you know, when everyone's, when you're coaching these numbers, you're assuming a, a perfect pitch, a perfect throw from the catcher is going to throw you out, potentially, and you're not, you're not, certainly not always getting that. Do your hitters typically have the green light when guys steal? Uh, that's another, another curious thing about stolen bases, and I think different teams have different philosophies on this. Do your hitters always have the green light to swing if they like the pitch, or if they see a hitter running early in the count, are they uh, are, are they taught or they coached to take that pitch and let the guy steal and getting scoring position? Kind of curious about that part as well. Yeah, we've never we let them swing away. So we've never, if a guy does something, it's not a problem with us. Uh, as long as it was a pitch he could handle. Now, we said, it's a good jump. If he gets a good jump, let him take the base in the count. But if the guy doesn't, you know, it's not, not a big deal. Because I think here at our level, you might only get one good pitch to hit. And if it was a pitch he stole on, then let's go ahead and hit it. And if it isn't that, we score from first while he's running. So, um, and, you know, teams are different on that. And we've never, you know, really gotten on guys for swinging when the guy was stealing if it was I want to kind of turn the page a little bit, just jump to a different topic. Uh, before we started recording, Jared, we talked a little bit just about how uh, the pandemic is affecting 
you know, players, college sports in general. Uh, we're, we're recording this in December 2020, so uh, you know we're we're we've got the 2021 season on the horizon. No one's quite sure what that's going to look like yet at this point. Um, but we talked a little bit of just about how there are there are athletes out there who are. Uh, th- this is affecting them in other ways, like particularly with their identity, because they're getting a big part of their identity taken away from them by not being able to compete, by continuing to get seasons canceled and things like that. And I'm sure that's affecting athletes at, of every age, um, high school, college. You know, a-, a lot of these minor leaguers that didn't get a chance to play this year. I'm sure that that uh, this past year that affected them as well. But what I what I'd actually what I'd like to ask you about is just with um, with you as a coach, you've been coaching for a long, long time. And I know that from, from personal experience that coaching really becomes a part of who you are. I have this conversation with my wife, who is a former school teacher. She does not teach anymore now that we have kids. She stays home with our kids. Um, and she'll say to me, well, I used to be a teacher, and I don't, I don't think of myself as as, as a teacher anymore, I, I think of myself as a mom, and 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 like I don't. She doesn't quite get how, like in my mind, despite the fact that I haven't. I mean, I, I coached high school in in the spring of 2018. Uh, before that, I the, my last my last season as a college coach was 2014. But I still consider myself a coach, uh, right or wrong. I just that's just kind of it's a part of who I am. It's it's kind of it's. Um, and, I, and the way I kind of try to explain it to my wife is it's it's more than just a job. It's it's a lifestyle. It's it's kind of a consuming thing because it's kind of it's it it's twelve months out of the year that you're that you're doing it that you're working you're doing something. It's and it's um it's more than just a job. It's it's much much different from the financial job that I have right now. Could you just talk a little bit, Jared, about and maybe this is something you've thought about. Maybe you haven't thought about it much, but talk a little bit just about how coaching affects. You know you and and how much coaching is a part of your identity and and just who you are as a person like when you introduce yourself to people you are Jared Franklin baseball coach uh, I just uh, kind of wondering since we had discussed that a little bit earlier with players you know just how how much baseball is a part of your identity and, and how it's kind of gotten to that point with you having coached for the last 20 years well I couldn't imagine I think you gotta love it, and I, and I, 
my goal with, with anybody is that they wish is that you find something that you love. Like, and baseball is what I love, and I would do it for free. I've done it for free. Um, and it is, again, you're right. It's a big identity. It's one of the jobs. It's, it's, and it's not like 12 months here. It's 24, 24 7 with, with things that can happen with kids and, and what's going on uh, with college kids, especially. Uh, that you're always on call with that. What kind of conversations have you had with players since COVID hit? Um, I mean, do you do you have guys that are that are having conversations that are struggling with different things right now? With you know, with seasons being canceled, and I'm sure you have upperclassmen that are that are having to weigh career decisions before they thought they would have to, or are thinking like, okay, do I? I graduated. You know, do I go back to school to try to play one last year? And, and I don't really need um, a master's, but do I go back and take extra classes just so I can play again? Have you had conversations like that with guys that are maybe uh, just going through some things right now, uh, and they just they kind of you know need to have conversations with you coaches to get things straight in their own minds? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, uh, you know, the guys, some all the guys got a year back for COVID, but. So last year we had one. We had one fifth-year guy come back that was eligible this year. The rest moved on uh, to the job. And part of that is Fordham's, Fordham's tuition is $70,000 a year. So if the guy's not a prospect, potentially get drafted, he's going to have a hard time paying $70,000 just to come back and play baseball. Um, so we've had that. We've had a conversation with guys who are seniors this year who still have that fifth year available. And, you know, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, Man, am I going to pay seventy grand to come back and play baseball, or am I going to go out with a business degree from Fordham and make seventy grand a year? Uh, so it's certainly been a, been a tough thing. And I think the other hard thing that guys are dealing with is what we're, you know, is, is identity of, of what their purpose is. Even at, even at the younger, but you know, the freshmen or sophomores this year didn't get to play last year as freshmen, so they didn't really have a year of experience. They don't really know what's going on. Yeah, I feel bad for those kids too that. Um, if, if this spring, if, if things go bad this spring, we don't get to play. Those guys missed their freshman and sophomore years, essentially of, of competition. And I don't see how many kids are going to come back for a fifth and sixth year if they get that bad team. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a tough time, and it's hard for the coach too because we don't have a whole lot of answers either with what's going to happen or could happen. And this is, I think, a part of. Um, Coaches of any sport, I'm, I'm sure, go through this, but but coaching is just different than a normal job because of this sort of thing. Because of all the other stuff you do as a coach, and for you at this point, Jared, you've coached forever. You've coached all over the place. You've coached high school, college, summer ball, um, at, at every diff- every level there is outside of professional baseball. Um, what does it mean to you to to be a coach? You know, when you tell people you're a coach, I, I'm sure you get this question. Uh, I used to get this question a lot. I, I'd say, you know, my wife and I would meet somebody for the first time or see whatever, see some some of friends, some of her friends from college or high school, and, they, and they'd say, or I'd say, yeah, hey, uh, my wife would say, hey, this is this is Jeff, and he's a college baseball coach, and they're like, oh, what else do you do? <laughs> no, 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 that's a, that's a full time job, you know, but. Like when you're when you're kind of just if you were to describe coaching or just just kind of tell people what the coaching life is like like what does it mean to you Jared to be a coach because obviously it's more than working with hitters and outfielders and being a first base coach what does it mean to you right now to be a a college baseball coach? Well, I think that the 
I think the question that's not asked enough is why do you coach? Why are you a baseball coach or a football coach or whatever sport you coach? Why do you coach? And my answer is to look at that. And it, it, you can do that every single day, whether you win or you lose or there's injuries, you can make a difference every single day. And I, I think coaching isn't uh, an instant reward. It's a gratification from that side of it. Nobody, rarely do kids after practice go, hey, coach, that was a great practice. <laughs> it's years after they graduate and come back the next year or five years or ten years later. But, hey, coach, you really helped me with whatever it was. And that's the most important thing. And that's why you keep doing it, and for me anyway. The wins and the losses, I, you know, they don't have That's what's great about baseball is you get to play again tomorrow. Um, and I've actually, I've, I've asked that question to coaches. And said, Man, why do you coach? Like, I like to win. Like, yeah, you know, you know could be disappointed several times. I can, I'm <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think that that's something that coaches are supposed to know when they're 25. You know, I, I think that it's probably no, not only normal, but I think it's I think it's uh, maybe the correct path that the 25 year old like just they they want to win. Like when you ask them why they coach, and especially for your guy, like why I want to win. I mean, I when I coached, I liked. I don't know how to say this. I hated to lose more than I liked to win. I kind of like expected to win. I, to me, like if you did things right, especially as a young, well, I, I shouldn't even say as a young coach. The whole way through my college career, I felt like if I if we did things right, ex- winning was the expected result. And when we lost, like that was the that was what what really affected me. And I I really wanted to win at a high, high level. Like I, I wanted to, as a junior college coach, as a division one coach, I wanted to win conference championships. I wanted to have a chance to go to a, a regional, super regional, a college world series. Um, I didn't get to do any of those things. Unfortunately, I, as a division one coach at my last stop at Moorhead state, when we got there, my goal, you know, that, that team that was in, we got hired in 2012, the spring of 2013 was our first spring. That team hadn't been to a regional since 1984. And I know that I recruited guys in, the, in our first recruiting class telling them, you're going to be a part of the first regional at Moorhead State since 1984. And I missed it by one year. Uh, the, of course, the first the first year I left, they won 38 games and went to a regional. But I never got to do it. But but as a young coach, that was, that was what I wanted to do. And honestly, Jared, in my case, it almost it took me – kind of leaving and stepping away from things to sort of reevaluate and get to a point where uh, I guess that winning and I still think winning is a very big I think if you're not trying to win you're not you shouldn't be coaching I, I just I always feel that way at a higher level high school and above high school varsity and above but there are other things to it that I think that I think deserve to be uh, more important as well how long did it take you to to sort of have the outlook that you do now or the perspective that you do now on what coaching is really all about. Obviously, you were older than a lot of guys when you first got into, got into college coaching. Like, Did you kind of have that perspective when you first got into it at Ohio Wesleyan, or did it take you uh, several jobs or a specific head coach to kind of point you in the right direction or just sort of maturing as you as you went along? Well, you know, I think I may have learned that the very first year coaching at 21 years old. We won six games, and everybody thought that was great. 
and only won six games. So it became that we weren't very good, and only winning six games that you had to find a reason beyond winning that you're there. Um, so I think I, I think I, like, I guess I don't know this for sure. I think early on I was able to go okay. We've got to do something more than just winning because this team isn't very good, and somehow I've got to make a difference with these kids beyond just wins and losses. Uh, and it's something I think I've, I've been pretty good at. You know, usually, you know, after a loss, I can be upset for a half hour or so, but I've never taken it home. Um, and I've, I've actually coached with guys who have said, I would lose my life if I'm not to talk to me. I'm like, man, that sucks. After a loss, <laughs> this is just a lot of these questions. I apologize for uh, for sort of sputtering a bit, but uh, these just I don't know. You think about things as you're going through these podcasts. Uh, I can remember one of my stops. We uh, my, my, our team went to play a team that was traditionally not very good. And our team was traditionally very good. That was my first year with this team. We were not very good that year. Uh, not as good as we expected to be. But we went, we were on a road trip, and we lost on Friday night uh, to a team that, I mean, this, I would guess over the previous decade, you know, my team had only lost this other team like once or twice. I mean, it was that much of a dominant, dominant uh, series. But. We lost on Friday, and I remember the drive back from the field to the hotel. Like one of our players, the players a little bit noisier on the bus. Maybe you'd like after like a difficult loss, and and of course we're going from field to the hotel. And uh, one of our one of our players specifically was like you could hear him kind of laughing pretty loudly in the back of the bus. And our pitching coach got up and we got back when like we were at the hotel and like lit him up, lit this guy up for, for just basically for not caring that we just lost. So I'd like to just kind of talk for, uh, briefly about your your take as a coach at this point. Uh, just sort of how you expect players to take losses. How long should you hold on to that loss? You know, how do you um, go about making the transition and kind of flipping the switch and, and kind of getting rid of today and moving on to tomorrow? Because, like you said, especially a Friday, Saturday, Sunday series, losing, you can't take Friday's loss into Saturday, obviously. So how do you, uh, what's the process that you talk about with, with your players now about how to, you know, go about moving on and, and, uh, and, and how long do you exactly do you hold on to that loss before you kind of let them flip the switch and just, and, and enjoy themselves as, as opposed to, you know, screaming at somebody who's laughing in the back of the bus? Right. Well, you know, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. The, I think it's interesting uh, that the coaches are always going to care more than the players, no matter where you're at. But we've invested way more time, especially if you've been to school longer than four years. You've invested more time in that school and that program than the kids probably ever will. Um, so you're always, as a coach, going to care more than the players. And I think you have to understand that. Um, I also think, my question to you would be, do you remember did that kid that was laughing play that day? He did. He was our starting first baseman. Oh. Why would he be that 
got upset if he didn't play in it anyways. Like from, a, from his perspective, if the 35th guy on the team is laughing at the back of the bus and hasn't played the week, I'm like, yeah, like, why, why, why should he be so upset? He didn't get the game. He didn't do anything. Uh, now, I love that. I would love if the 35th player on the team was like that. But that doesn't happen. It's never happened on anything I've ever had, I don't think. Uh, also, if a kid cares that much, he's probably a starting guy anyway. Um, that's interesting. I, I just don't, I don't put that much stock into it. I think like Joe, uh, Joe Madden did with the Cubs when he was there. He gave him 30 minutes to celebrate or 30 minutes to talk and then move on to the next one. Um, and I think that's it. I think if you're, if you're a starter and you're, you know, and you're happy after a loss, you're probably not going to be starting a whole heck of a lot more than after that. Um, but I, I used to be like that too back in the day. I'd get on guys and it's like, you know, it's every, every level I've ever coached on every team I've ever coached. You care as a coach far more than the players ever will, most of the time. Um, so I don't, I don't worry that much about it. We're, we're talking in general, like, all right, take a half hour, be upset, take a half hour, be happy, but let's move on to tomorrow now, too. Do you think that that's changed at all from when you first started coaching until now? And I want to just point to something specific that I saw this past Sunday, NFL. Uh, I saw a tweet that like one team was down like 35 to nothing, and then uh, a running back punches it in for the team that was losing, makes it 35 to six. Um, and the, and the, of course, the team is celebrating in the end zone, and like everybody, they're going in front of the whatever this. It's like a screen they have set up now in all these right. end zones, so like the players can go over and look at themselves and like you know they're celebrating and it's like, dude, it's thirty five to six. Like as a baseball coach, I just I have a I always did and probably always will have a hard time with guys that are that are sort of acting that way when you're you're getting your ass kicked. Um, but I just wonder if things are are any different now than when you first started coaching, just because of it's it's kind of more of a showcase world it's more of like uh you know guys promoting themselves on social media it's you know with travel baseball travel baseball is all about getting the individual the opportunity as opposed to you know the team you know team ups and teams team downs um do you think that that's changed at all and if has that made coaches having to soften a little bit there just because it's players are are honestly taught and brought up to care more about themselves than they do necessarily about the team uh, or do you think that that's something that uh, I, I guess hasn't necessarily changed but this is just the, how kids are like you said the coaches are always going to be more invested than the player usually right yeah no I think it's definitely changed and I think you're exactly right with the showcase and those guys are just randomly on a team with with uh, 12 guys they don't know for the showcase and uh, they're not playing to win they're playing for themselves that's 100% true and you see it when they come into freshman as freshmen in college, like they do not know how to win as a team. Um, and or that the lineup is it's we talk about this, the lineup is a living, breathing organism of one through nine. It's not nine individuals, it's not a group of nine trying to beat the other team. So that means that you have to sacrifice Don or hit the other way or uh, whatever it is, it's not just at the, at the college level up there swing, trying to hit a home run every time. Um, at least at our level. So I, I think kids have to be taught that. They have to be t- taught the competition side of it. And we, can, we try to compete as much as we can in practice, make things a competition, put something on the line, even if it's as simple as push-ups or something. It's not necessarily running. But, um, but I think freshmen especially come in and do not understand uh, how to win as a team. And because, because of the reasons you just said. All very... 
interesting things. And as a coach, I, you know, I know that there's there's always uh, uh, pushback on social media for the old school guys and the new new school guys. But I, I think that anytime you're you're coaching for a long time, just society changes kids to a point. I, I think there are certain you know you know principles or things that you think are really important as coaches that you shouldn't let go of necessarily. But uh, but but kids do change over time, and it's because of their their environments change, the things that, that they're brought up doing or, or the things that other people have them doing or other people are telling them is right um, or, or whatever. I don't know, whatever it is. But a, a lot of things change over time. They do. And you've been coaching for a long, long time, and I'm sure things are different now than than when you first started, when you played or when you first started coaching. Um, I'm sure a lot of things have changed. <laughs> yeah, sure has, especially the technology. I mean, that's definitely made, made things different. Um, but, yeah, I, I really think... Um, I think the parents have changed, uh, you know, too, with all that. And that, that it's not always necessarily the kids' fault. I, I don't necessarily blame the kids for not knowing how to win as a team when they when they haven't really been brought up with that. And I think that at times, you know, the high school season is almost just kind of a throwaway or get ready for your travel ball team in the summer instead of, um, you know, winning. Let's go win a state championship or a conference championship. They, the kids are just having to get ready for travel ball to get seen by colleges then. Um, so yeah, I think that there's definitely going to change in that, and and you have I think as a coach, as a college coach, you have to understand that it's changed, and we have to teach these guys how to compete, and teach them that it is nine against one, and not a, nine individuals. It's a group of nine that's trying to beat the other team. And I tell you, working with infielders, the biggest, my biggest problem I have with infielders is getting them to talk and communicate and over communicate. And I think part of the freshmen are usually the worst part of it's a new team, but they don't. They don't know to talk and communicate. They just assume everybody's going to know what they're supposed to be doing and how to do it. Uh, and I, I spend a formal, that's probably what I get on guys the most for in the fall is their communication on the infield, lack of communication on the infield. But I don't, I can't necessarily blame them because they are playing typically with random players uh, in showcases and whatnot that they have no idea what's going on. And not only that, but when you're on these, you're on the field at showcases, not that there aren't good coaches at those levels, but if you don't have a chance to practice with your team on a regular basis, you don't have a chance to practice communicating. So it's not like as the travel coach that you can be out there uh, really expecting guys to communicate much. They're on the field with guys they don't know. They don't get a chance to practice often. A lot of them, even the even the the travel teams that are comprised of kids that live close together. You know, you go play three or four games in a weekend. You come back, have a couple of days off. Like, are you really going to practice in there? And if you do, how much? It, it's um, so it's not it's just not set up that way, and you know on the recruiting side of things, you talk about like kids, uh, they they play their high school season and it's almost like okay we're just getting kind of getting ready, getting geared up for travel ball. Unfortunately, there's not that much recruiting done now during the high school season. So, and again, just and I'm not I'm not trying to totally take any responsibility away from the player, but. If they know they're not going to get recruited during high school, they know they're going to get recruited during the summer. You've got to believe that's going to affect them in some way. Not that they, you hope they're still competitive. You hope they still want to win, but it, it is it, it's it's a lot of it is what their opportunity is going to be at the next level. And if they know their opportunity is coming in the summer, part of you can't blame them for oh for sure thinking ahead a little bit. No, no, you're right. You're exactly right. It's hard, very difficult for us to recruit in the spring and season, and 
you know, everybody's out in the summer. So, I don't, again, I don't blame the kids at all for that. It's just the way, the way it is right now. And um, Again, I think I think it, as a college coach, you have to understand that and, and sort of groom them as freshmen into what it, what it takes to win at the college level based on, on their knowledge of, of like, you know, they didn't bunt in, in high school. They didn't hit and run. They didn't communicate. They probably didn't even know half their teammates uh, in the summertime. Uh, so you got to, you definitely got to teach all that now, for sure. The other problem is nobody watches baseball. You know, the kids don't watch, they don't sit down and watch a game or even parts of the game anymore to understand the game. So I, I think the knowledge of the game is certainly lacking also. I, I don't think you're wrong on that at all. It's a, and, and when it comes to a lot of this stuff, a lot of it is like a, just adults adults ruining the game for the kids and <laughs> misguided adults doing things left and right that you wouldn't like them to do. Well, when's the last time you saw two kids in the yard playing catch? I, I don't know the last time I saw that. They just don't. There's too many other things happening and going on. Or like kids playing wiffle ball in their backyard. I grew up in, in very rural Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a you know, 10 minutes outside of a town of 2,000 people. And, like, my, my high school had 160 kids in my graduating class, and it was comprised of there – there were probably four or five towns that that made up this high school. So, like, a, a very rural area, and there was, like, you know, a couple kids that lived on my road, uh, which was a, a very – again, very very much out in the country. Like, across from my house was a – was a field like a wheat field and that's that was kind of like that's where i grew up and um but like my brother was, is three years older than me he played college baseball and uh it, it was he and i and, and two of our neighbors who were my brother's age like we played wiffle ball almost every day for probably like five or six summers five or six straight summers until ba- like basically as soon as i was old enough and then until the the oldest guy got his driver's license, <laughs> you know that's kind of, like as we did in the summer. We we went swimming. And one of the guys had a pool, and and we played wiffle ball almost every day. And uh, like we found the official wiffle ball rules where you like hit it past this line as a double, and and all that stuff. And like that that's what we did. And I, I just you don't see that really anymore. Yeah, you know what? That's interesting. You say that. One of the things we talked about doing this fall, and we ended up not, but was letting those letting them pick teams. And then, and we were just going to umpire as coaches. We weren't going to set lineups. We weren't going to set pitching. We were going to have them just basically uh, a pickup baseball game with our team. You guys figure it out. Figure out who's going to hit first and second, third, and argue about it if you want. But you know, back in the day, that's how you did it. Recess. I'm going to. I want to kick first, or I want to hit first, or, and you just figured it out. We we could have a serious conversation about doing that. Is is, is we weren't we were going to have two guys pick a team, and then they had to decide as a team, who was going to hit where, when they were going to bunt, when they were going to steal, and who was going to pitch when. Just kind of, just figure it out, fellas. Like, instead of us telling you to do that, I think that's part of the problem, too, is these kids are always told what to do. They never have to figure stuff out on their own. I'm an advocate for that. Uh, I did that as a high school coach. I, yeah. I thought it was, honestly, really effective. So I had the varsity and JV guys practice together. Just so we could inter squad and like and just do some things numbers wise, and um, there were days I just I felt like we needed it, so I had a set of throwdown bases, and basically we would split into three teams. I would pick three captains. I let them, I let them just I let them pick their their own players. So number one, that really opened some guys' eyes. Like I didn't I, I, honestly I thought it helped with just guys seeing where they are in the eyes of their teammates because there were guys that were selected very late 
that were like upperclassmen, and it's like, okay, now do you see why you're not getting any varsity innings? Like your teammates are picking freshmen before you, you know. And uh, but you let the, you let the guys pick, and then I, again, I just like you said, I umpire. You let them set the lineup. I kind of laid out some ground rules of how it was going to be. I let them pick where they played defensively. Now, if a guy was in a ridiculous position, like I'm not going to. You know, let our 300 pound left hander play shortstop, but like for the most part, you let the guys just kind of do what they want and, um, and let them just play with, we play with the rag ball, if you know what that is, like the, uh, the Incredibles. But we played with those, so like they, they carry, but not too much is better than a wiffle ball. I let them swing their own metal bats and, and it was fun. And I think they, I think they enjoyed it. I think they got a lot out of it. I think that they learned things about themselves and about their teammates. And, and you kind of see the competitiveness there too of like, because I basically, if they won, I let them stay there, and the loser had to go do other stuff, other parts of the field that wasn't nearly as fun. And like, you just see a little bit of competition come out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely think there's something too. It's interesting that you've done it. We, did, we had a serious conversation. We were going to do it the last weekend. And I think what happened is we had uh, some contact tracing and had to miss a day, so we ended up not doing it. Um, but I, I, I do like the idea, and yeah, that kind of reminds me too. I talk about. I think one of the problems coaches have is, or even younger coaches is, is, is um, or younger players is hurting guys' feelings. Like, I don't want them to pick teams because somebody's going to get picked last. And I'd say, you know, I, I don't, what's wrong with that? Uh, and I kind of say that the very first day when I work with infielders, the very first day in the defense, like, the guy, I'm here to make you a better infielder. I don't, I'm not afraid to hurt your feelings. It's to make you a better infielder. So understand that what I'm going to do and say to you is to make you better. It's not personal. There's a lot to it. I, I think the holding them accountable is a big part of it. Honestly, what you just said, Jared, is a big reason why I wanted to do it. I wanted the players, like in college, we would have guys fill out a sheet that, like, ranking their teammates. Well, this is like, you know, this is the um, the unanonymous uh, way to do that. Like, let's we're going to pick teams, and and if you're if you're picked last and you don't like it, well, you better do something about it because you're, you know. Teammate, your teammates see you as lazy. They they don't think you're very good. So you better do something about it if you want if you want to change. And you got to do something about it. And I think at some point in life, you know, metaphorically speaking, or or literally, they're they're going to get picked last. <laughs> like something they want is going to elude them, and and they're going to have to face reality and and realize that that happened not because things aren't fair or because the boss doesn't like me. This happened because. Of what I've done, I've yeah. put myself in this situation. I love the the, the sign that I've, I've seen in, in like the Jimmy Johns that says uh, you you do it when you do what you did, you get what you got. Like it, in Moorhead, there was that sign, and I, I kept telling our head coach, like, we, we got to steal that sign out of here and put it up in the in the locker room. You know what I mean? Because it's just I think it's a reality guys need to face, and, and I think it's a great way to do it, a great reason to do, to do that. And I would seriously, I'd recommend I'd, I'd, if you guys are, have toyed with it. Like on a day when your players just need something different, you know that happens sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you did it because I, I really, I like the idea. I, I think too. I don't, I don't think in today's society Michael Jordan becomes Michael Jordan because I don't think in today's society he gets cut from the varsity basketball team. And beca- and then because he got cut and really wanted the job, wanted to be on the team, he worked his butt off that next year to become who he was. And I don't think that happens in today's society. 
Or he gets cut and his mom tells him that the coach is a jerk and doesn't like him and, and he should just play a different sport. And then Michael Jordan doesn't doesn't like decide that he's you know, going to do all the things that he did. So yeah. yeah. This is Jerry Go ahead. Well, I think it's interesting too. I, that was one summer that I had a kid that was, uh, I think he was hitting about a buck eighty, and he was a two-way guy, and his ERA was like six. Back to the summer, he wasn't playing much, and he came up to me and said, Coach, do you want me to be here? And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? He's like, well, I'm not playing. And I was like, well, listen, buddy, this is a personal. Don't make this personal. Like, personally, I like you. I want you to be here. Yes. But professionally, you're not hitting and you're not pitching, so I, what, I'm not sure what you want me to do with you. But it was interesting that that's the way he took it. Was it because he's not playing that it was a part that I didn't like him and didn't want him to be there? I'm like, no, man. Personally, I really like you. I think you're a great kid, but professionally, you're not getting the job done. We got to find a way to be better. Yeah, and and I, you know, not to get too deeply philosophical here, but I think that there are some. I, I don't know if it's the way that parents are raising their kids, or if it's just I, I'm getting older, so I'm seeing it for the first time. But but going back to my one my one spring as a high school coach. You know, I had parents that, that were like, with tears in their eyes, come up to me and ask me why Johnny's not playing. And it's like, it's okay. Number one, and I, I would try to like deescalate. Number one, it's not, it's not personal. I just, I don't think that he puts us in the best position to win. And number two, please don't associate your kid's success on the baseball field with like who he is as a person. Your son's a good kid. I'm sure he's going to have a lot of success in other parts of life. But like, he just, this is not. This is this is not where he excels, and that's okay. He's still a good kid, even though he's not one of our, you know, best twelve players on our varsity team. He's still a good person, and like you're still a good dad. Uh, and it's just it's not it's not personal, and that's but that's how they take it. I think there's a lot of identity tied into, you know, who you are on the team is who you are in life, and that's just that's just not how it is. In some cases, it is. I, I think in some in a lot of cases, baseball and other sports bring out personality traits for sure, but. Oh, yeah. You can have a, a really terrific kid who's just not gifted on the field, and no matter how you know how good of a kid he is, or how good of, how good of a teammate, or how hard he works. Like I've had play, parents that have that one year, I had parents say to me like, "He's been to every practice. He never misses. He does extra work." You know, we've my, as a as a family, like we've given this and this to the team, and it's like that's that stuff's all great, but that's not that's not what gets you on the field. If you want to be in the field, he's got to be a better player than he is. Like, I don't care if he comes to practice every day. I love that. I'm glad he does, but I'm not going to put him in the game because he comes to practice every day. And that's just, again, I think those, those are just pieces of reality creeping in as, as a 17 year old that you're kind of seeing for the first time. Yeah. And I actually, I think that's, I, it's okay. Like, they've got to be able to handle failure. And when it doesn't work, because when it happens in real life, if they've never handled it, they are not Things go crazy. I think it kind of softened that summer a little bit with some of the things, but um, yeah, it's crazy. That some of that stuff, that it's just like, oh, I should look every day. Well, yeah, but you got to outwork everybody too. <laughs> that's very true. And even then, sometimes it doesn't happen. And that's yeah, right, right. that's part of life. You know, if you show up every day to work, but there's somebody who is there, you know, Two thirds as much as you are, but they get more. They they do. They get more sales than you. Well, they're probably going to get promoted. Like, right, 
Sometimes you got to figure something else out. This is Jared Franklin, everybody. He's uh, an assistant coach at Fordham University. And, Jared, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. If you have not checked out Jared's videos on the website, I would suggest that you do so. Uh, he just you can, you can kind of feel the wealth of knowledge in his videos, and hopefully we can continue to have him be a part of Figured Out Baseball going forward. But, Jared Franklin, everybody, uh, Jared, I sincerely appreciate you being on the podcast, sharing a lot of the knowledge and the wisdom and just in, and the insight, just everything you've given us today has been very, very valuable. So I want to personally thank you for that. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it.